Romans chapter 4 is uh, where we are in our study today. Take your Bibles and let's go to that text, verses 13 through 22. And uh, as we turn there, let's uh, pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you that your word gives us light and empowers us in believing. And we need light and we need to believe. Lord, you know the various positions that we're all in today. There's nothing in this week that has been hidden from you and nothing that surprises you. And so we come with all of our burdens today and we come encountering your word and encountering you. And so you have a purpose for today. So would you help us to hear from you what it is that you are trying to say through this text? We want to receive it, and we pray that you, Holy Spirit, now would be our teacher. Open our eyes, we pray, to wonderful things from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. While studying for Romans chapter 4 this week, I stumbled across a hymn uh, written in the early 1800s by Charles Wesley, a hymn I would gather that very few of us have sung. And the reason is, is that the hymn uh, sort of grew out of popularity in the 1920s. It was no longer published in any of the hymnals. Uh, another reason, too, is I listened to the hymn, uh, the, the, the melody line, and it's it's pretty bad. And Charles Wesley wrote the lyrics, but some other guy wrote the melody line. It's just not very singable. And it's unfortunate because the text in this hymn is very relevant for 21st century Christians. Here's what Wesley said. In hope against all human hope, self-desperate I believe, thy quickening word shall raise me up, thou shalt thy spirit give. Faith, mighty faith, the promise sees and looks to that alone, laughs, at impossibilities, and cries, it shall be done. You need to know that Romans 4 is all over this hymn. All over in the sense that that first phrase, in hope against all human hope, that's word for word from Romans chapter 4. As well, there's a clear connection in the hymn between faith and promise, and we see that in chapter 4 and verse 13 of our text, and as well, to laugh at impossibilities. That's a reference to what Abraham did in Genesis chapter 17. When he heard that Sarah, his wife, was going to conceive a child, and when he heard that he was going to conceive a child at a 100 years old, he laughed. He, believing, laughed. He heard God's word, and he knew how old he was, and he believed and just was like, wow, it's awesome. He believed and laughed. So Wesley's hymn is a great introduction to what we are going to examine in Romans 4 today. And last week we learned that there is a connection between belief and righteousness. And today we're going to see the connection between the promises of God and faith. Last week we saw the connection that faith, not works, creates righteousness And today we're going to see the connection between faith and promise. Look at verse 13. 
It says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring. This word promise, this is the first time this word is used since chapter 1 and verse 2. And verses 13 to 22 is the most thorough treatment of the idea of promise in the entire book of Romans. If you have an ESV Bible, there's a, a heading over top of this section. It reads in my Bible, the promise realized through faith. And that's a great summary. Because what Paul's going to show us here is the way in which the promise that God makes is laid hold of, is grabbed a hold of by faith in the same way that righteousness is laid hold of by faith. In other words, to fully understand the beauty of what it means for the righteousness of God to come to you by faith, you also have to appreciate the connection between faith and the promise of God. And so today, we want to talk a little bit about this idea of promise. So what does it mean that God has promised? And in the text today, there are three things that Paul tells us. He shows us first that promise is apart from works really building on what we saw last week. Secondly, that it rests on grace. And then third, that it is to be believed. So it is apart from works, it rests on grace, and then it is to be believed. And as we go through this text today, the thing that I want you to think about, and something that we'll do together at the end, is for you to think this thought. What is it in God's Word... What, it, what promise has God made to you that this Lord's Day He is asking you to recommit to believe again? What is it that God in His Word has promised that you, like Abraham, need to believe? Looking at all of the impossibilities and laughing, saying, it will be done. So, a promise, first, apart from works. Paul's first point connects a thought that we've already seen in Romans. Essentially, the main point is this, that righteousness does not come from works. And Paul wants us to see this anti-works mentality as it relates to the idea of promise. I want you to see how the word promise is all over this section of Scripture. Take your Bible and just put your finger on the word promise. First in verse 13, there it is. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. And then verse 20, no unbelief or no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. And then verse 21, where it kind of wraps up this pericope, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So promise, promise, promise. Four times that word is used because Paul is helping us to understand the significance of what it means that God has promised. Now, the Greek word for promise is epangelia. You hear the word angel in there. The word angel has the idea of messenger or epangelia. The word for promise means announcement. It means news. It means something that God has said will happen. What's interesting is this Greek word epangelia is closely linked to the word for the gospel, the good news, which is euangelia. So the good news is simply a good promise that God has made. And the reason that it is a good news is because of the fact that it's a promise that God has made on our behalf and to us. Faith and promise are absolutely linked. The promise of God is essentially what we put our faith in. 
Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So what is the promise? What's the promise that Paul's talking about? Verse 13, the promise is that Abraham and his offspring would be heirs of the world. Now what that's referring to is what God had said to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 as it relates to the Abrahamic promise where he told Abraham that in him all of the world would be blessed or all nations would be blessed. And what Paul is doing is taking that promise of all nations will be blessed and he's linking it to the redemptive story in saying that we will then be heirs of the world. So Paul is showing us that the eventual conclusion to the promise of Abraham that all nations will be blessed in you is the moment when all who put their faith in Jesus become heirs of the world. Look at Revelation 22. You have your Bible? Go to there. Revelation 22 and verse 1 through 5. This is the, the ultimate conclusion. This is the end game of where redemption is heading When through Abraham, the Messiah would come who would bring about the restoration of all things, meaning the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 22 and verse 1. It says, Then the angel showed me the river flowing of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. Notice that. And His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And then notice how the text ends. And they will reign forever and ever. Meaning that the ultimate conclusion of redemptive history is that Jesus reclaims the world that belonged to him that was stolen in the rebellion of Adam and Eve. And he reclaims it all for himself. And through that reclaiming, he then makes those who know him as Lord and Savior to be co-regents along with him. And we reign along with him. So if you look at the world and the news, if you see the plight of culture, and you see the degradation of what is happening in the world, I just want you to remember this thought, that it will not always be that way. That one day Jesus will return and claim this territory called earth that belongs to him. He will be seated on the throne of David, and he will reign and rule, and there will be no sin, no evil, no sickness, no pain, no rebellion, no evil anymore. It's all gone, including the devil, and we reign with him forever and ever and ever and ever. Even so, Lord Jesus, come, right? I love what Abraham Kuyper said. That there's not one square inch on planet earth over which the risen Christ does not say, mine, mine. So Paul's point is that the promise is that we would be heirs of the world. Go back to Revelation, or Romans rather, chapter 4, and look at verse 13. This beautiful promise that God gives to us through Abraham, though, comes not by works. 
Look at verse 13, the latter part. That we, that he could, would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So in other words, righteousness and the fulfillment of promise are both connected to faith. And he establishes why this is. There are two reasons. Verse 14. For, there's the first reason, if the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, If it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. So the first thing he says is if this promise that you're going to reign with Christ, you're going to be part of the promise of God in Abraham, were to come through works, then the promise would be in vain and faith would be null. Secondly, verse 15, he says that promise and law are antithetical. For the law brings wrath... But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Paul's point is this, as one commentary says, Law, though good in itself, is so closely bound up with sin and wrath that it's unthinkable that it should be the basis of promise. So what Paul's establishing from the very beginning here is that just like righteousness comes by faith, so promise also comes by faith. The law, by definition, serves to only undermine our hope in the promises of God because of our inability to earn those promises. And what Paul is saying here is that no matter how hard I try, I could never do enough to deserve or earn the promises of God. We don't believe and work. We don't do that. We simply do not work. We just simply believe. Again, as Wesley said, in hope against all human hope, this is the line I love, self-desperate I believe. So promise, like faith, coming and producing righteousness, promise comes apart from works. Here's the second thing in the text, and it is that a promise is such that it rests on grace. Look at verse 16. Paul says, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So he says, the promise rests on grace. So the first point was that promise comes apart from works. The second point, and this is really important, that the way God works is such that promise rests on grace. You see, a promise is only as good as the one who is making it and keeping it. You know, I found as a dad, I make promises, and I try and keep as many as I can, but the reality is, is I don't keep all my promises. Sometimes I have really good ideas at the beginning of a day, and then things don't turn out like they're supposed to turn out, right? I'm also finding that it's harder to break promises to little girls than it is to little boys. A little poochy lip, and man, it just, that's conviction comes. So yesterday morning, I said to Savannah, we're going to go out, let's go out and ride bikes. So we did, you know, I had this idea, you know, of ring, ring, and we're out, you know, kind of riding bikes and things of that sort. And she went shopping with mom, and I had to do some work and things of that sort. And she came back in the afternoon, I was tired. She said, so how about that bike ride? And I was like, oh, honey, I, I can't do that. I got, I got too much to do. And she said, really? Like, really? And I'm, of course I can, right? Because got to keep the promise. 
The fact of the matter is, is that promise keeping is not what we're good at. You can probably think of people in your life, I can't in mind, who made you a promise and then they couldn't or didn't keep it. If the promise was based on our ability to earn God's favor, if the promise of our future was based upon our ability to keep it, we would be in a terrible position. A works-based understanding of righteousness or a works-based understanding of promise securing puts you in a constant state of stress and continual fear. How would you know if you ever worked enough? And for that matter, what assurance do you have that you haven't just lost it because of what you've done? And you realize that every other religion in the world, this is the, this is the theology that they have. You have to earn God's favor. And you better not mess up because God could squash you or condemn you. And as a result, there's always fear and condemnation. So when you hear Romans say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that isn't just beautiful, that is unusual. And that's good news. Incredibly good news. If the promise rests on grace, oh, then there's security and hope and joy because to say that the promise rests on grace is to say that the promise rests on God. And that is what makes the gospel good news. Well, I was studying for the sermon and wrote this next little section. Sometimes you think, well, God's Spirit moves just when you say things spontaneously. I was, as I was writing this, I felt the favor. I was meeting with God when I wrote this next section. So forgive me, but I'm going to read it to you because every word as I was writing just felt like, God, you're right here. This was a worship moment for me. It means that my hope that God can and will forgive my sin through the sacrifice of Christ does not rest on me, it rests on God. It means that the beauty of an imputed righteousness, the legal declaration that a person is completely righteous is what God does, not what I do. It means that the ability to put very attractive and appealing sin to death actually happens as I look away from my desires and the promises offered in sin and I trust in what God says, that I fight through Him and by Him, not by myself. It means that when suffering or persecution comes, my confidence in that hard day is not in me. My confidence is in God. It means that the promise of my... In eternal future, that those who receive Christ will live eternally in the new heavens and the new earth with no sin and no death and no pain and only God's glory. That promise is rooted not in me. It is rooted in God. And it means that the hope of continuing to believe for the rest of my life such that I can be sure that I will never abandon him and never desert him and I will never deny him, that belief rests solely on God, not on me. The hymn writer said, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. That's why this promise needs to rest on grace. Aren't you glad it rests on grace, on God, and not on you? Eternal security is not just believing once saved, always saved. Eternal security is believing if God did this, nobody can undo it. Second reason why it depends on faith, according to this verse, is so that the promise can be guaranteed to all his offspring. 
not only to the adherents of the law, but also, this is verse 17, to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now, Paul uses, it almost sounds like, wait a minute, there's two kinds of people, those who are the adherents of the law and those who have faith in Abraham. Like that, those are two kinds of paths to salvation. That's not what's happening here. What Paul does is he uses adherence to the law and those who have faith in Abraham as a term, as terms to refer to Jews and Gentiles. So Paul uses the law in lots of different ways, and in this case, he uses the law to refer to those who are Jewish and those who are Gentiles. What is he saying? What is he saying is that faith makes Abraham the father of us all. So what Paul wants you to do is to marvel at the depth of God's grace. He wants you to see that it depends upon him, and it depends upon him, and it depends upon him. And he wants to then have us understand the beauty of this mercy and how deep it is in our lives. And then what he wants you to do is to get a new viewpoint and have it blow your mind that God not only loves people individually at that level of depth, but he loves anyone who chooses to receive Christ as Savior. So it's not only the depth of Christ's love, but it's the breadth of his love. Maybe an illustration would help you. Imagine that you see in the distance a mountain. And you stand at the base of that mountain. You just behold its beauty. You stand in its awe. And you look at it. And you marvel at it. And you say, that is an incredible mountain and full of majesty and power. And so you, you, you say, you know what? Let's, let's climb this mountain. So you get up and you start climbing the mountain and climbing the mountain and climbing the mountain and climbing the mountain. And you get suddenly where there's a clearing in the trees. And the majesty of the mountain is suddenly eclipsed as you see not just one mountain, but thousands of mountains upon mountains upon mountains upon mountains. And you not only see the depth of the majesty of one mountain, you see the breadth of a mountain range. And this is what Paul wants you to see. He wants you to see the depth of God's mercy, but then to realize, and this is the floodgate that God has opened to all who will believe. This is what corporate worship does for you. I mean, isn't it incredible? I mean, look around you. There are other people here besides you. You, you hope you know that, right? There are other people who, who in, our, in our singing and in our, our listening, that, that we are helped because God not only is merciful to us individually, but then to think that he's merciful to, to me and to you and to all of us. It is this great expanse of what God is doing. Multiplied over and over and over is the beauty and majesty of not just one moment of grace, but thousands of moments of grace. So the promise of righteousness through faith is apart from works. Secondly, it rests on grace. Third, the promise of God is something that needs to be believed. Now what Paul is going to do in verses 17 to 22 is to strive to fan our faith into flame. So Paul is going to help us to see what it means to believe And in helping us to think about what it means to believe, he's going to encourage us to believe even more. And here's what happens. When you meditate on God's promises and begin to trust in them, it then serves to strengthen you for other future promises. That's why we need senior citizens in this church. 
Because you have a lifetime of legacy of God being true to his word and true to his word and true to his word. And we need old people who on their deathbed can say, keep trusting the promises of God because he's never failed me. I didn't do that disrespectfully like I was old, did I? Like, like that? Because what we need are senior citizens who can declare with bold assurance that God keeps his word. Paul lists six phrases about Abraham's belief in God's promises. The first one in verse 17 is this. Six phrases about God's promises that there was a belief in God's power. Verse 16. That is why it depends upon faith in order that the... Sorry, it's verse 17. Verse 17 As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So notice what Paul does there. Talks about Abraham. He's the father of us all. Verse 17, he requotes the promise. I've made you the father of many, I will make you the father of many nations. And then he tells us the context of his belief in the presence of God in whom he believed. And then he says two very important things about this God in whom he believed. Why should Abraham believe in God's promises? And for that matter, why should you? Because of what it says next. Because God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. Do you know the significance of that statement? God is the one who brings to life what is dead and gives life where it doesn't exist. God is able to do what no one else can do. He can bring life out of nothing. Next Sunday, we'll celebrate Resurrection Sunday, where God brought Jesus out from the grave. That God has the power to conquer death. So the believing in the promises of God is linked and rooted in a foundational belief that the one in whom you are believing does what no one else in the universe can do. And that is he can raise the dead. He can give life where there is none. He can call people out of the tomb of their own self-sufficiency and give them life when before they were walking dead people. For me, this truth has often sounded like this, leveraging my conversion when I'm struggling to believe the promises of God. It sounds like this, Mark, if God can give life to your spiritually dead heart, if God can call you out of the tomb of your own spiritual death, then surely he can deal with this. If God can call you and make you new. He has the power to create life where there is none. Then surely he can deal with. To believe in the promises of God means that you are siding with a God who can bring life from death. Verse 18, here's the next one. In hope against hope. I love this phrase. In hope against hope, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. I love this statement because it's so, it's so real, it's so honest. 
In hope against hope. Believing in the promises of God is not easy. Especially when the circumstances of life line up such that when you look at it, there is no way that rationally you should have any hope. That's what it means that he believed against hope. That in your human, rational intellect, you look at the circumstances around you and you're just like, there's, there's no way that anything's going to change with this. There's too much time. There's too many issues. It's what the disciples believed. Our leader just got crucified. It's over. we got to hide. We're next. And then they hear the news three days later. The tomb, I went there. The stone's back. It's empty. Just like he said, he's risen from the dead. In hope, against hope. Meaning that what you see with your eyes can be conquered by the beauty of God's promise. Verse 18 and 19 say he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So Abraham looked at his own body. It's like, I'm as good as dead. There's no way I'm going to conceive a child. To hope against hope means that despite what you believe, you still believe. Despite what you know, you still are fully persuaded And if we're honest, this is a scary thought. Because to hope requires risk. To hope against hope means that you're going to believe that God could change the circumstances, that He could change the circumstances around you, that He could do something different than the way that life actually is. And yet Abraham chooses to hope against hope. Or again, as Wesley said, faith, mighty faith, the promise sees and looks to that alone. It laughs at impossibilities and cries, it shall be done. I love the fact that Abraham and Sarah do not deny that they're old. Some people think that faith is denying reality. Oh, this isn't hard. Oh, this is, we're not that old. <laughs> they're 100 years old. Right? It's undeniable. We're old. We're past the point of bearing children. This isn't going to happen. But for God, those facts were in fact true. But there is a difference between something being true and something being ultimate. There's a difference between something being true and something actually being in control. To hope against hope means that while you live in the real world, you also know that God is true to his word. There have been many times in my lifetime when I have run up against scenarios and said, I have no idea how the Lord's going to work this out. But you know what? Somehow, someway, I'm going to believe that he will. Or I've also said, Lord, I don't know how in the world this fits with your good heart. But I believe that you are good. And somehow, somehow, someway, This works out for my good and for the exaltation of your name. Tomorrow, or tonight, my family and I will travel up to Michigan. I'll attend the funeral of a dear man who was in my church. He was 39 years old. He's the father, was the father of Michigan sextuplets. They had six children born at once. Um, They had another child, seven-year-old, or a, a, a child is now about seven years old, eight years old, I think. And um, had a heart attack this weekend at age 39. And the reality is how those things line up with God's good purposes, I don't know. And yet I know that he's good. And to hope against hope means 
that you believe the promises of God even though the reality of life is hard and circumstances are very challenging and life is incredibly painful. Next, the text tells us that promise means battling distrust. Verse 20 contains another phrase that I find really helpful. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. Or no unbelief. That's another way the ESV renders it. No unbelief. So Abraham kept believing the promises of God. He kept believing even though what he saw with his eyes, he believed with his heart that God was going to be true to his word. The reason I love this statement is because it acknowledges the potential of wavering in our fight, the potential of falling into unbelief. One of the most helpful lines I ever heard from John Piper was this, keep trusting the one who keeps you trusting. Keep trusting the one who keeps you trusting. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is from Mark chapter 9 when, if you can imagine the story, a father of a demon-possessed boy comes to Jesus and pleads with him in order to heal his son. This demon possession thing in this child was causing seizures and he was falling on the ground and falling into the fire and foaming at the mouth and it just took over this this boy's life. It took over this family's life. Can you imagine this man with all... Let's just say the child was maybe eight years old and for eight years they've been dealing with this and trying to contain it, and never knowing when it's going to happen, and trying to protect the son. Can you imagine your love for your son, your hatred for this thing that's in him, and you bring him to Jesus because you know it's been heard. Jesus heals people. He could change this kid's life. He could change your life. So he brings the child to Jesus in Mark chapter 9, and Jesus, after the disciples tried to heal this boy and they couldn't do it, Jesus says to the Father, all things are possible for the one who believes. When I read that statement, I stopped and it just sort of took my breath away for a moment because imagine you're a dad, you brought your son to Jesus, and he says, everything is possible for the one who believes. In other words, the healing of this child now rests on the belief of the father. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. Everything is possible for the one who believes. And what does that dad cry out? He says, I believe. And then what else does he cry? And help my unbelief. Why is he saying that? He's saying that while he believes, that he still needs Jesus' help to fully believe. i got to believe there's some of you that that's where you're at today. Not only that you, you know you need to believe, but the reality is there is unbelief. And so in your belief, you need to say something like, Lord, I believe and help me because you know there's elements of my heart that I don't believe. And so if it rested totally on me to believe, it never happened. If, if that healing of that child rests totally on that father's belief, like he could m- sort of muster up enough belief, he'd never be able to do it, which is why he says, I believe, help me, because I don't believe like I should, and I want my son to be healed. Don't hinder his healing because I can't believe fully, so help my unbelief. That's a beautiful cry. And Jesus helped him and healed him. Next, always growing. Text says in verse 20 that he grew strong in his faith. 
In other words, Abraham's belief was not just a one-time event. It was something that kept growing and growing and growing. In fact, the more he believed, the stronger his faith became. So faith is something that we need to, to grow in. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 3. There's a warning here because your faith can grow. It can also diminish. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You know what this text is saying? It's saying that we need to speak God's word into one another so that we can keep on believing, that we can keep growing in faith, to be reminding one another to cling to the promises of God, to grow strong in faith, and to help other people grow strong in that faith. To be able to grow stronger and stronger and stronger in the promises that we believe. Next, giving glory to God. Verse 20 says that the object... And the aim of his faith was God himself. Growing in faith was directly tied to the glory of God. No distrust or no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. So the focal point of Abraham's faith and the fuel for Abraham's faith were the same, namely the glory of God. And what happens through biblical history is that the more people trust and behold God, the more they trust and behold God. That's what happens. They see him and behold him, and they then see him and behold him even more. The more they know about him, the stronger they grow in their walk and in their relationship with him. And then finally, verse 21 brings it to a conclusion with this beautiful statement. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Notice that. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So Abraham knew that he was old. He knew that Sarah was barren. He knew that he couldn't see a way forward, and yet he knew God's promise. He was fully convinced that God could do what God said he would do. So he didn't see how, but he knew who. No, If I could get that in just a few of your hearts today. I know you don't know how. I don't know how. You don't know how. But we know who. Gave up the why question. Right. Give up the why question and give up the how question and just rest in who, 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 who and be fully convinced that God is able to do what God does. And that's why verse 22 says, and that is why his faith was counted as righteousness. So what does all this mean? It means that apart from works, God removes our ability to take credit for anything. It means that the promise of God rests on grace so that we can have the assurance that it will never fail us. And the promise of God must be believed because God himself stands behind it. And so the question that we all have to wrestle with today is this. Do you believe? Do you believe in the promises of God? 
For some of you that may look like for the first time putting your trust in Christ and saying, you know what, I need to be done with who I am and my sinful activities and instead put my faith and my trust and my hope in Christ. For others, it looks like not a one-time decision, but a lifetime of belief. It means continually trusting what God says about us. It means to keep trusting the one who keeps us trusting. When you came in today, you should have received a card that looks something like this. I want you to pull it out right now. Or a blank piece of paper somewhere, something that you can write something down. John Wesley said, in hope against all human hope, I believe. And then he went on to say, faith, mighty faith, the promise sees and looks to that alone and laughs at impossibilities and cries, it shall be done. Here's what I want you to do with this card. In a moment, we're just going to dismiss. There's going to be some quiet music that's just going to play. And as you are led, you can stay or leave whenever you're done. But I want you to take this card and I want you to write down, what is it today that you need to believe? What is it that you need to laugh at the impossibilities and say, God, I don't know how, but I know who? And some of you, we'd love to be able to pray for what's on this card tonight. And if you would be led to have us pray, I invite you to take the cards and you can bring them up here at the front. Just lay them on the stage and someone will collect them. And there'll be people specifically who will pray for what it is that today you need to believe. So what is it that you need to believe? What is it that you need to say, God, in hope against hope, I'm going to trust you that you know what you're doing, and I don't know how, but I know who. Let's pray, and you reflect. Father, help us to hear from you and to reflect on what it is that we need to believe today, to hope against hope, to believe in your promise and your word. So come now. Speak to us. And give us the faith to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.